Welcome to the Jerry T Podcast. I'm Jerry Thompson, joined by Dave Shields. And this is maybe the best time to be doing a Magic Podcast is immediately following a Pro Tour, especially one with a format that we love in Modern. And I guess technically there was some limited there too, but we don't really have to talk about that all that much, especially since it's Lord of the Rings. But uh, I initially had plans for this weekend and then I, I just canceled. So I got to sit and watch basically all of the Pro Tour. And Dave, I think you were doing kind of a similar thing, yeah? Uh, I watched a lot of it and it was definitely uh, no shortage of exciting moments. Yeah, it was good. Uh, I, I think overall, one of the things that makes coverage compelling and and good and makes me excited for the next one is like the storylines that come out of it. And this this pro tour for sure had no shortage of excellent storylines. Yeah, a lot of surprises in the format and the metagame itself. Um, a lot of interesting storylines throughout the tournament, and then. Um, a lot of really, really exciting games. So um, I was certainly glued to it, especially down the stretch on Saturday. Yeah, and we had a lot of unanswered questions going into this too with regards to uh, just Lord of the Rings impact in modern and the one ring in particular and what can you do against Recto Scam and stuff like that. And we have some matchup data to look at, probably some players to talk about, but uh, you want to talk about coverage? first and foremost, I guess. Sure. Why not start with the most exciting thing? Is that is that the exciting part? I like watch people play, and I, I didn't for this one, but there are definitely a lot of pro tours where I will mute it and maybe be watching something else, you know? <laughs> but, like, I, I just like watching the matches. So, I don't know. Uh, my, my experience with this one was I did watch most of the limited rounds, but, like, have played less than <laughs> less than zero games of Lord of the Rings. I've like purposely avoided it and I've seen some discourse on the internet or whatever. But aside from that, I just had no idea what was going on. So that was kind of one of the scenarios where I was just like, all right, I, I'm going to have this on because I'm awake, but I'm going to tune it out, you know? Yeah. And I don't know that, it seems fine. I like I like the aspect of like following, you know, one person in a draft pot or whatever. I think that's good. But certainly for me, knowing none of the cars or like what the strategies are or anything, it was none of those things got shown on screen like ever. Yeah. The limited rounds are always really hard to follow. And I've played a few more games of this limited set than you have, but not a ton. Um, probably somewhere around 10 drafts. And I've enjoyed playing it, but I certainly am not super familiar with the names of all the cards. I'm like vaguely familiar. Um, but I found myself on the computer watching and with a separate window, kind of like looking up cards while I was watching, which was a little annoying. And then, you know, when I have it on the TV in the background, obviously that's not an option. So I, I think there's... Listen, limited's not great for coverage, and I don't. I think there's some things they could do better, but I don't know that that's going to change a ton. I'd be curious to know how many of the 270-ish players were at this PT. I think it was 269. Actually, are happy that limited is there because before that was a thing that existed to appease the old hats, but a lot of these pro tours don't even have that portion of the player base at them, right? So 
if it's bad for coverage, and we know this, just looking at the numbers historically and everything, then why is it still part of the tournament? It's interesting because I do think it adds an interesting dynamic to the preparation for the tournament. And like as a player, I do enjoy the idea of like having multiple things to focus on. And I think that like flexes interesting muscles and um, keeps me engaged in interesting ways. But again, if the focus is trying to make things good for the viewer, I I would agree with you. I'm not really sure that it should be a part of it. What if it was two constructed formats? I think that you might be onto something there. I think um, that certainly is a little bit more daunting as far as preparation goes, but I think it would is lead it? to some interesting storylines. Like, um, if you're a person grinding RCQs, those are primarily constructed, and then you are asked to learn a limited format where, at least back in the day, you know, you you grind the SEG Tour circuit and... Now that is a way for you to reasonably qualify for these sorts of things. Like you, you just weren't playing limited at all. So then it's like, oh, I just have to learn like this new game in addition to this new format. Whereas I think a lot of people are just paying attention to like all the constructed formats sort of naturally as is. Yeah, I'm with you there. And like I grew up in an era where the Pro Tour was always a format that kicked off the PTQ season just after. So as a PTQ player, watching the pro tour to kind of like set the expectation for what in the direction of a format was always like a super exciting thing. And I I think you could probably do something interesting where the pro tour is like a combination of two constructed formats. And one of them is like the culmination of the format that led up to it. And then the second format is the one that's kicking off the next season. I love that. And then that's the format where the top eight is played. Yes, I would agree. Yeah, I think that's cool. I think Maybe there are some people that would uh, take offense or whatever to like, oh, I grinded Pioneer and then get to play Pioneer in this Pro Tour or whatever. It's like, I I don't think that that's a bad thing, but I think that there are people who do lean on the side of like, oh, I want the Pro Tour to test you to the maximum and like force you to learn new things and like demonstrate mastery. And I understand that having it be like limited and constructed, which are two wildly divergent things does play into that more. And then certainly forcing people to like learn limited or a new limited format does add to that too. So I, I get that, but I'm not sure I necessarily agree with that. Yeah. I think in principle, it sounds like it makes sense, but in practice, I think it's quite a bit different. And to be honest, this pro tour was quite a bit different than that to begin with, given the amount of time that the set was out before the pro tour. Like I, I can't remember a time where, a set was available to draft online for months before the actual pro tour. So I think at that point, like splitting it out and maybe not even doing limited can make a lot of sense. Word. Well, uh, since the return of the pro tour, they've been doing things a little bit differently than they had previously, which is basically just showing pre-recorded matches, but very close to in real time. And that means that a lot of the time the players, you know, are not updating their match results on social media, like immediately after they happen and stuff. So it's like, it feels like it could have been happening live to some degree. And because they have a bunch of like pre-recorded content, it means that they can show matches like back to back to back in a lot of instances, which is cool. And, you know, maybe the the third match you're coming in game three and they're playing it at like two X speed or whatever. But 
Either way, a lot of magic, very little downtime. I think that all that stuff is excellent. And the thing that I ran into for this one, though, was like maybe specifically because I was watching it at my PC instead of watching it on my TV or whatever. But I had Melee open because initially that was the first spot to find people's deck lists. And so it was just there. It was just there right in front of me. And then I, I realized that, oh, the matches actually get updated in Melee in real time still. So despite there being currently a feature match for a thing going on, if I want to, I can get the match result in Melee generally a lot sooner than the match concludes, at least for on coverage. And so I, I like spoilers, basically. I know like a lot of people you know, tend to avoid them and like shame people who spoil you or whatever. I don't care. I like knowing the end result of things. And uh, I told I told you this and you're like, you have no self-control. And it's like, no, I do. But like, I'm utilizing my self-control to like choose to do the thing, you know? So I, I think that maybe that's kind of like a bad thing because maybe a lot of people don't want to know that that exists because they don't want to get spoiled. But I kind of liked it. Listen, if people don't want to know, they don't have to look at it. And I think, in general, the pacing of things I thought was fantastic and like huge steps forward. And I think that's been going in the right direction for a while. And the constant action was great. Um, I think the concept of Melee is awesome. I still struggle and fight with the interface a lot. But um, one of the most exciting moments of the whole tournament for me was before the tournament even started, the sec or right when it starts, and the second all the deck lists become available on Melee. And uh, I think being able to follow the matches that aren't necessarily the ones on camera through Melee is fantastic. And listen, if you don't want them spoiled, don't look. Yeah. I don't want to hear how you rationalize that. Yeah. Well, it's right there, Dave, you see. Yeah. Well, listen, you can have it right there. Just if you refresh it and then complain that it's there, like I think you only <laughs> have yourself to blame. No, I know. I know. Uh, I, I'm not sympathetic to those folks who like don't want to be spoiled, but then can't help themselves. I am certainly sympathetic to people who like a movie comes out and then they just see spoilers on Twitter or whatever. It's like, yeah, that sucks. You know, yeah. you, you didn't really have control over that, except for you maybe chose to follow some silly people or accidentally went on the free you tab instead of the following tab. But yeah. that's also kind of not in their control because of how much of a shit show Twitter is. So, you know, maybe once. Right. But like, I think that's kind of like the expectation now. And if that's not what you're expecting, I think you need to take a long, hard look in the mirror and adjust your expectations. Yeah, and I, I think a reasonable answer at this point is just delete Twitter. So yeah, I don't even know if it's too. called that anymore, but it's hard to say. I mean, I'm not going to call it anything else. <laughs> Fair. So that's, that's all it will ever be to me. I don't give a shit. <laughs> anyway, uh, Constructed Rounds pretty good. Had Cedric Phillips on the actual, like, coverage booth for Finally. the first time at Pro Tours. Shocker. He was really good. Finally. Um, and big steps forward there. I thought the teams in the booth did a overall pretty good job. Um, again, I think there's still areas and opportunities to improve things. And you and I have talked a bunch about this of like my big focus and ask is always like stay focused on the games, right? Um, and Please. when you get distracted from the games, Please. I get really frustrated. Um but I didn't find myself going for looking for co-streamers this time. I found myself like with the volume on the whole way through, which is not always the norm. And um, yeah, I've uh, I think it was a good step forward in the right direction. 
Yeah, it was good. There were definitely some moments of like, oh, what the hell just happened? But uh, it was not in Cedric's matches. Yeah. You know, he is, he's generally on top of things. He's paying attention. But yeah, in, in with other casters, sometimes that, that can be a thing where you can tell that they just like zoned out for a minute or whatever. And it's just like, ah, I, I wish that that would not happen, you know? Yeah. It's, I, listen, it's not an easy job. And I'm sure that, you know, I can't relate to it at all, but my big ask would be, yeah, focus on the game, especially down the stretch. My favorite thing about coverage was the fact that they got rid of Monty and the machine. I don't want to talk about that. Let's just pretend like that never was the thing. I'm I'm going to talk about it because I, I know Monty. Uh, when I was in Seattle, you know, Monty's in uh, Vancouver and, There'd be a lot of times where, like, I'd go up there or he'd come down to Seattle for an event. You know, like, th- there were usually the, uh, was it RCQs back then when it was, like, PPTQs? I don't even know what they called them. PPTQs, probably. No, but, like, And yeah, then there it was... would be an RCQ to qualify after that, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, so, like, the finals was the RCQ, but now the PPTQ is called the RCQ. I'm just now realizing that. That's weird. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, the, the finals for the PPTQs would always be like in Seattle at Mox boarding house. And Monty was always cute. So he would always come down and he would stay with us at our house, you know? So I, I like Monty a lot. I think he's great. And I did not really enjoy that, uh, that little segment, shall we say, but I don't know, you know, probably, probably not Monty's fault and it's not there. Hopefully it never comes back. And, uh, Yeah. Love, love Monty, love what he does just in general. I think that he's been a great addition to coverage and I'm very happy he, you know, got a spot, got a role and everything. But that was one of those things where it's just like, why, why are we doing this? Who, who is this broadcast for? Do you even know? Yeah. And like, listen, I'm always going to celebrate trying new things. I think I would love to see us try different ways and more things in doing it. But like, let's try it once. If it ain't working, let's move on. Yeah. And the first time they did it, I was like, okay, this is not for me, but like they're trying it and maybe they'll get some feedback and like iterate on it, whatever. And then they just like, they just kept doing it. Just the exact like same thing or whatever. It was like, okay, can we, can we stop this? And I'm actually shocked that they did stop. So like, that's a good thing. It's great. Yeah. I'd love to see more experts on the desk in general, right? I think Monty brings an interesting perspective and I think um, getting a few more experts in there to kind of like help provide different perspectives and angles on things and maybe even challenge each other on some takes and opinions on things would be super interesting. Yeah, I'd be down for that. That sounds like stuff that's in my wheelhouse. But yeah, again, I don't know if that is the exact sort of thing that you want to have on your broadcast is just like, contentious points of views with each other you know yeah and again obviously there's a lot of different angles and a lot of different people viewing from a lot of different perspectives at least selfishly for me i would love to see more debate about uh interesting situations or spots and i think that um Monty and a few others bring a level of expertise that can provide that yeah no i definitely agree with that uh anything else about coverage as as a whole um i'll say that I think that my first reaction in seeing all of the deck lists leading into the coverage, I was a little bit disappointed. And I don't know, like this isn't quite coverage, but maybe like the decks and the metagame and the format that people brought of like, I was hoping for something a little bit different than what happened as far as the decks people brought. There was not very many surprises uh, out there. And I think that that had me like a little bit 
disappointed. And then I thought the games and the coverage like did not disappoint. So I, I think the deck was almost stacked against them, at least from my own perspective and opinions. And I, I, I still think it ended up being really good. So more, yeah, more that's fair. I, so before the tournament started, after deck lists were submitted, some folks were posting their lists on Twitter. And then there were a couple of them that popped up where I was like, oh, hell yeah. Like this is what I'm talking about, right? Where uh, I guess this one was not necessarily on Twitter. This might've just come from, from you like sharing, like I think it was Chase's deck maybe like the Esper uh, ring deck is basically like blue, black splashing binding. Yeah. Like you sharing that with me. I was just like, okay, innovation, love it. And then uh, there was someone else. I think it was Rob Paisano who was posting like uh, Oliver Tomiko's four color list. That was like no solitude with Karn. Uh, fury instead and i was just like yes this is it this is the innovation that i love to see like this rules karn showing up in four color as an answer to these one ring mirrors and stuff like maybe maybe this pro tour is just going to be awesome and then it was it just kind of ended there like that was it <laughs> yeah um surprisingly predictable again and um I still think there's a lot more to be figured out, right? And don't get me wrong, there was some innovation and some teams that did some clever things, but it was far more subtle than I ever would have predicted. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. But overall, the show itself, the tournament itself, was was pretty good, pretty cool. And yeah. eventually culminates in this top eight where it's like a bunch of Rhinos, a bunch of Tron, and not... A thing that I think a lot of people would have predicted, right? Yeah, I think that like the I wish we reflected a little bit more on the Rhinos angle. And that's a deck that I've always historically underestimated. And I've never really understood if I'm being frank. Um, but I think it was, you know, if scams the deck to beat Rhinos being popular should have been a little bit more predictable than I think I realized. Um, but I think the Tron doing well and the scam doing well were things that we've talked a lot about and that were not very surprising to me at all. Yeah, agreed. So Tron rising to prominence as A, a very good deck with the one ring, and B, a deck that goes way over the top of the other ring decks. That makes a lot of sense to me. And the bad thing about Tron is, okay, it has a pretty bad scam matchup. And I guess you look at the numbers, uh, 43% against scam, which is not that bad, not the end of the world. And, uh, you know, these numbers, once again, brought to us by Frank Karsten. Love Frank doing just God's work and making all the content for us. Uh, so, like, 43%, honestly, is not that bad. And you also have to take into consideration how wildly different the Tron matchups were from, like, the handshake version of Tron to, like, the average player's Tron experience, you know? So, I, I'm kind of curious, like, what the handshake Tron numbers were against Scam specifically. Yeah, I heard and saw some people discussing that they were quite a bit better. And again, how much that is their list and how much of that is, you know, well-practiced and seasoned players, I'm not sure. Um, but it seems like they took things in the right direction. Um, I also think that Jake, who ended up winning the event, did something that made a lot of sense that I think more people, I thought more people would have done, which is like skimping a little bit on the Blood Moons to kind of try to get some edges in the mirror. Yeah. Which I think is like part of the reason why, you know, that should have helped the Tron matchup and what have you. Yeah. And then as, as far as Rhinos is concerned, 
the, the narrative for us, at least over the last few weeks is like, what do you do against scam? You know, like what actually has just a naturally good matchup into scam. And like Rhinos is certainly one of those decks and at the pro tour 64%, but out of, out of only 14 matches. So not massive. And then, you know, Rhino's not doing great against Tron and, uh, just absolutely oh I'm, I'm looking at four color rhinos hold on i saw rhinos and just glazed over okay no okay 19 and 13 so better sample size 59 percent rhinos against scam and then kind of medium against Tron, and then very very bad against living end which is to be expected but yeah rhinos is one of those things where yes it is good against scam but it's pretty bad against anyone who's actively trying to beat you. And I think that the, like those sideboard cards just didn't really exist this weekend. So it was a good time to play that deck. Absolutely. Yeah, I think it was well positioned. And I, I still think Scam's the big winner from the tournament. Like going in, very few people were targeting Tron. So Tron kind of dodged a lot of the hate. And if anything, it was trending down with the Scam decks trying to beat the mirror, like I was saying. Um, and I think the fact that Scam was both as popular as predicted and as targeted as it was and still did as well as it did is like a testament to how strong that deck is. And I, I don't think that's going to change much going forward. Yeah. 54% overall, which is pretty incredible for a deck that is, you know, 20% of the field and everyone knew was going to be an issue. Uh, but overall 32% against four color, 57% against Tron, 41% against Rhinos, 68 against Yawgmoth, 58 against Demir Control, 65 against Living Ends, and 22% against Burn, which obviously that's pretty bad too. But uh, I, I imagine their their win percentage against the other category just has to be massive. Yeah. And like, honestly, the number that surprised me the most out of the ones you just rattled off is the Yawgmoth matchup and just how strong it is there, especially considering how many of the top players and top top teams decided to bring Yawgmoth. I would, it, you, it would be really hard to convince myself to bring a deck to this tournament that didn't have a good or reasonable scam matchup. Yeah, un unless it's Tron, at which point you're kind of good into everything else. Sure. And then and you like, do what you can to fix the scam matchup. Yeah, like acceptable, right? It doesn't have to be above fifty percent. But what what did you say the 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 um Yogmoth matchup was? I think it was sixty something percent. Sixty eight, yeah. So Jeez. pretty bad. Wow, and that pretty reasonable sample size too. So yeah. Um, so to be fair though, there are a lot of Yogmoth decks that were still doing things like playing hierarchs. Yeah, and you just can't be doing that into Bowmasters. Like they're there were things that happened in this tournament, like Seth Manfield played Scam, but didn't play any Ragavan's main because of Bowmaster. It had two in the sideboard. And I think that's extreme, but like for you to, you know, register Hierarch when there are plenty of other good options in that slot, just like play the thing that doesn't die to Bowmaster if you have the option. Yeah. Bowmaster certainly invalidates quite a few cards that historically have been pretty good in modern. And I, do not think it's legal to register them anymore. And Hierarch is definitely one of them. Yeah, so uh, that's certainly not going to swap things dramatically. And I think it was only a small percentage of Yogg players that had Hierarch still in their deck, but it was non-zero. And I'm, I'm sure that that came up. I'm sure that that mattered. Yeah. So yeah, Rakdos, uh, pretty, pretty good call. Tron, 
uh, maybe overall the best call, especially if you are a very good player and are able to, you know, tune your list a little bit. Uh, I, I think it was really night and day as far as like the, the handshake matchup percentage versus everyone else playing Tron. And a big part of that is because of the skill gap. And I think that really plays into a lot of the stuff that we've been saying about like finding the true matchup of things where like you can see how a lot of this data is flawed, right? Where like the handshake matchup percentages are probably closer to the true than everyone else. And then, you know, say, say that you test and achieve like the true matchup percentage, like how useful is that for playing in an actual tournament? It's like, well, if like the numbers for you are still pretty good, then you play it. And then if you are playing against, uh, you know, people who are not as good as you, you just take that added bonus as like an extra. You know what I mean? Yeah. This was the Alexander Hain effect in my testing for Pro Tours where his winning percentage was just ridiculously high no matter which side of a matchup he was on. Yeah. Yeah. That that makes sense too. And then it's like, how do you account for that when you're like sharing testing results or whatever? It's like, you have to talk about how the matchup feels. What are the things that are important? Is this a thing that is fixable? Like, how do we go about fixing it? What's the opportunity cost of this? Blah, blah, blah. It's not just talking about raw numbers. Yeah. I find the most effective thing for myself, at least, is to play the opposite side. Right. And um, I'm I'm really big with you on how it feels, but I, I don't think you can come to reasonable conclusions about how things feel until you see it from both perspectives. No, I definitely agree with that. I think yeah. that no matter what, people should be playing both sides of the matchup to just have a better understanding. Yeah. And that's how you can get a real sense of like cards like Karn the Great Creator and the amount of impact they have and like what you can see that that card's doing is obviously great to begin with. But then when you play against it and realize how many cards in your hand and how many of your top decks it's invalidating um, is how you truly realize how suppressive that card is. Right. And I mean, there, there were so many moments on camera in... Tron mirror specifically where it is very clear that they have practiced the mirror because they are deathly afraid of Karn the Great Creator to the point where you're like naming it uh, with the stone brain instead of the Tron land they have not put into play yet right yeah and you don't necessarily get that perspective until you're like on the side of things and it's like your opponent casts a car and it's like I just want to concede because none of my cars do anything right and then it's like okay well what if we try maybe putting Karn in other spots or whatever? Or like every time you sit down to test against Tron, you're like, this feels hopeless. It's like, okay, well, maybe we should be playing Tron. Yeah. Karn the Great Creator may be the best card in modern. Given the context of things, it certainly seems that way. Yeah. I think it would be pretty hard to make an argument for an alternative. And I think a place I would be is Tron looks to be the best Karn the Great Creator deck, but also is very weak to Karn. So are there other places that that we can make Karn work? And I think quite a few teams tried a few other things and came to similar conclusions. Maybe weren't as successful as I would have predicted, but... Yeah, and I mean, going forward, uh, especially into like RCQ season and stuff like that, I think that maybe you will see a lot of that stuff get tested and pop up because now Tron has had an excellent weekend. And there are a lot of people out there that own a set of Tron lands that are just absolutely salivating over this. And 
then they're going to run afoul of, you know, people's car and brews or whatever. But, you know, it's 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 going to be cool now that you know that, like, Tron is going to be a more sizable portion of the metagame. And if you take more of a direct stance against that, you will probably see that come to fruition to some degree. Like, a lot of the decks that I'm building now, I'm certainly experimenting with a lot of stuff that have Karn the Great Creator in them. And a lot of my sideboards have things like break the ice, cleansing wildfire, etc. So uh I expect a lot of other people to be preparing in much the same manner. Yeah. Sir Tron is certainly not going to be flying under the radar anytime soon. Um and I think it's going to be interesting to see how the Tron decks adapt to that. I was I'd say some of the more interesting and impressive games from coverage over the weekend were games that Tron was able to win through the hate. Yeah. That it, didn't line up. It, yeah. I, I don't know. Did you have Twitch chat open when you were watching? I very rarely open Twitch chat. I almost always leave Twitch open, but the chat itself is something I try to avoid. So generally, very smart choice. But I am maybe one of those people who can't help myself. So I had it open a lot, not always, but it was really funny seeing the sort of like realization for people happen in real time where they're like, oh, I just thought that Tron was this like really silly one, two, seven, like herder, don't have to think kind of deck. But the fact that the narrative was like, hey, look how much more these smart people are winning with Tron than these other people. Right. And yeah. look at how far these people are willing to go down in cards to Mulligan to like try and find a cohesive draw when. Initially, people are just like, oh, my God, like, you know, this person's on four cards. Obviously, they can't win. And then they just do win very easily. And it's just like, oh, crap. You know, it's so like that, the handshake narrative, and then seeing the games where, yeah, you you know, you don't assemble Tron or it gets blown up repeatedly or it gets stone brained or whatever. And you just play this like normal fair game and it ends up being like fun and interactive and looks cool. And then people in the chat are just be like, I think I like Tron. And it's like, yeah, goddamn right. Yeah. Like, there, there is nuance to all of these things, right? Tron included. Yeah. We watched Calcano play multiple three or four turn games and then alternatively multiple 12 turn games where countless decisions were made. Right. And I think the, the, la the, the former side was predictable and everybody expects that, but the latter side was the surprising part. Yeah, and a lot of those games just absolutely ruled. And I think there, there's two big things that led to that. And one of them is obviously the One Ring, right? Which gives the deck an ability to grind and bridge the gap when you don't develop Tron or your Tron gets shut off in some fashion. And it's something that costs less than five or six mana that lets you still kind of do things in this mid game. And then I think the other really big story about Tron is the return of Oblivion Stone, which all the lists are playing four of now. And playing it for three and sacking it for five in a relatively fair game is obviously not ideal, but we saw quite a few places where that was pretty hard to beat. Yeah. And then that just bridges into your sixes and sevens and whatever. It's like you're playing in a really old standard, like reap and sow tooth and nail deck or whatever, you know, it's just like, I'm not killing you on turn three, but I can play this mono green ramp control thing just pretty easily. Yeah. Listen, you're bringing me back to Solemn Simulacrum and the likes. Yes. And yes, sign me up for that. Yeah, and it's like how how different is Solemn compared to like Ring or Karn in terms of like bridging the gap 
in their respective formats, right? They're doing a lot of the same work there. And I think that we saw that play out in probably the majority of Tron games that we watched, honestly. Yeah, I think they that, that Solomon and the Wondering actually fill a similar role of like, they're never your primary game plan. And if the game ever plays out the way you want it to or you hope it does, they're never involved. But when the games become broken, which happens quite often, cards like that help you bridge the gap quite a bit. Exactly. And, uh, you know, you're, all, you're also talking about games where you're going to mulligan to four a lot, right? So you're, you're not going to have access to a ton of resources. You may or may not have access to Tron, especially in the face of hate, at which point having access to a lot of four mana cards like it's just a net good thing for your deck you know it's like you don't want your deck to have all sevens and eights and whatever and i I think a lot of the moto lists leading up to this were just all about like cityscape levelers and all that type of nonsense and i think the decks that were successful were like yeah i'll tron up and maybe i have my one or two of karn liberated or whatever or maybe i jam a worm coil engine but most of the time, I'm just getting by playing like three and four mana stuff off my Tron lands. That's good yeah. enough. Yep. So they're more resilient versions for sure. Uh, all right. Buying or selling? Three Sylvan Scrying. Oh, buy. Buy. I'm, I'm down with that. Uh, so going lighter on Chromatic Star, I think, is a little bit risky, but it didn't seem that way watching the deck play out but like i've definitely had games with tron before where just like i have all this colorless mana but like not being able to filter into you know my stirrings or my scrying is a big enough deal and i don't know i I think star against things like dothy void walker like that does matter a ton i think it's a very smart move to shave down on those things and even to the point where you're still playing one copy because you recognize the necessity for you know, some amount of that stuff and like using like a talisman as both a way to ramp to four in fair games, but like another thing where it's like, I need to call this thing that uh, provides green mana, but doesn't get dinged by Dothy. I think that all that stuff was so smart. I think it was all very, very good, very smart. And even to the point where you're like shaving a colored card to make it so you're not as reliant on that stuff. All that stuff was just absolutely beautiful. Yeah. And I think if there's another card of the tournament past Karn, it was Dothy Voidwalker. And the big takeaway I have from the handshake list is the amount of respect they had for that card. Three dismembers, which Three. you can look at as just a Ragavan card or whatever, but... No, there, I think there it's were, a Voidwalker card. Yeah, it, I mean, it's Voidwalker. There were a lot of games where the scam player would just jam a Fury on turn one, and it cleanly answers that, too. I mean, their list was really good and it's uh, a prime example of how like oh I changed like you know three cards and now my list is super innovative haha it's just like no that's actually true sometimes and I know that their list was more than like three cards or whatever but you know what I'm saying yeah not always true for whatever that's worth but in this case I think that a lot of the changes they made were not super intuitive Um, buying or selling the two Urza Saga that looked awesome. I, I think the only thing that I would do differently is maybe add a land on top of that. I'm with you there. <laughs> would have paid a lot for a second Besaju given the amount of Tron there was. Yes, exactly. Uh, that is that is definitely a thing that I would have wanted access to. But I don't know. It's, it's weird, right? It's like 
you play Tron because you think it's a good choice, even though maybe the scam matchup is not ideal. But when your entire team of very smart people chooses to play Tron, doesn't that mean that maybe other people are going to come to the same conclusion? Maybe. This is also like the Brian Kibler effect of like, how much do you build your deck to beat your own team? No, oh, that's that's definitely true. And I uh, I teamed with Kibler quite a bit. <laughs> it made I mean, for some of the absolute best stories. Yeah. Listen, he won a pro tour with this logic, okay? So um, I'm not going to fault him for it for a second, but um, the morality of it is a little debatable. Well, so he won a pro tour with it, but like he also got his teammates to like switch to his deck because what he was saying was true. Oh, sure. I think that you know? the, the story I understand is that the Pro Tour Honolulu that he won with Titan, he was going to play a different deck, but it couldn't beat Titan Ramp. So he switched to it instead. Oh, yeah. No, he was he was going to play like the red green mid range deck. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And he's like, but this can just never beat the deck that my team is playing. And my team is full of the best players in the world. So I'm not allowed to do this. You're right. I was getting that kind of out of order where I thought that he was like, he wanted to play like his team wanted to play mid range. And he was like, well, it can never beat the Titan thing. And then they're like, all, all like, yeah. yeah. And then they all play Titan. But no, you're right. It, it did happen kind of like in, in the reverse, which just led to him playing the team deck. And like, given that he is very proficient in that style of deck, I imagine that he probably did some things to make their deck better as a whole also, so. I would agree. You know, yeah, he did win the tournament, but I would imagine that he probably had a decent amount to do with, like, the team overall doing well, so. Yeah, well, and Finkel didn't block the Huntmaster, you know? Exactly. Uh, I mean, I, I think that Finkel very easily could have won, but yeah, neither here nor there. I wouldn't have blocked for whatever it's worth, but. I'm at 14, I, man. What's the worst that can happen? Well, we know the answer to that now. Yeah, that's true. Uh, back then, I vaguely feel like I thought that you just like couldn't lose if you blocked. Oh, it was certainly right to block in retrospect. And like, I don't just mean because he had it. I mean, because like, given all of the possibilities, it was definitely right to. But I, you know, I it's hard for me to imagine myself blocking. Yeah, in the moment, but I, I don't know. I, I feel like I have that thought a lot where it's like, is like, is this going to cost me or like, how do I actually lose this game? You know, and then maybe playing a little bit too much on the conservative aspect of that and potentially opening myself up to like losing in different ways. Yeah. And like, listen, I'm somebody who I pride myself in getting those last five and 10% in games where I'm 90% to win yeah, and being exactly. hyper conservative there. And that's still a place where it's really hard to imagine myself doing yeah. it. But we're, we're, we're 15 years in the past in a situation that probably not a lot of people remember. So no, they're, they're just like, what the hell are you talking about? Yeah. But yeah. I if assure you, you won- if you don't know what we're talking about, I assure you, great, like very important moment in Pro Tour history. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. Top four, Finkel versus Kibler. Please go watch it. It's fantastic. Pro Tour Hawaii. I played 2012, I believe. Uh, that sounds about right. Yeah. Yeah. I played an unplayable deck in like top 50 or top 25 or whatever. I don't know. Yeah. My good friend, Matt Costa, made top eight, played against Finkel. And one of my favorite stories from this event is they're playing a Delver Mirror, but Finkel is on the Lingering Souls version. Um, and John Mulligans to six and snap keeps without hesitating. 
and keeps six land and zero hesitation and just wins very easily. That feels like a mulligan to me, but I the mana base on that deck was a little sketchy. Well, listen, it, the zero hesitation part of it is the reason I love that story so much of like, I think it's the ultimate swagger move. It could be that. It could also be like, I'd rather lose than mull the five, which is not a great look. No, not a great look. But And, and again, the story only works because you won very easily, but... Um, yeah, yeah, agreed. Yeah. Well, you cert- wouldn't be telling the story otherwise, you know? Yeah, certainly one of the things I bring up and remind Matt of on a regular basis. Did Matt probe him on turn one? No, I don't think so. He might I don't know if that makes it better or worse. Yeah, I don't know if you want to, right? There's a lot of good probe stories from that era, but yeah. Incredible card, yeah. Yeah. I think I remember Friedman probing Brad in the top eight of a Grand Prix and Brad had no lands. Or maybe it was vice versa. Which, which is funny because <laughs> CFP gave Brad a bunch of shit because in playtesting, someone probed him on turn one and he conceded. <laughs> which is just like, leave. <laughs> yeah, it's just like, why are, why are you on the team? Yeah. You know, like why, like, why are you keeping a hand in testing where if I saw your hand, you would scoop out of embarrassment? You're not even going to show me. I would I would just grab his hands and demand right. to see it. No, it was dude, it was already in the deck. Like he knew. He knew that it was just like that. Oh, I can't, God, let, I can't let anyone see this. Yeah. yeah. So uh that that went on for like literal years, man. Yeah. Them them giving him crap about it. So cool. Yeah, cl- and- classic, classic bully behavior. Yeah. Any other thoughts about Tron or the handshake version or the likes? Uh, not not specifically. I mean, I, I think if you were paying attention to coverage, you you kind of get it. But uh, things that became apparent uh, over the the Swiss rounds of modern, not necessarily related to Tron or whatever, but a lot of the matchups did play out in the way that they're sort of scripted, where it was like you see rhinos play against like living end, for example, it's like, obviously they just get destroyed. You see rhinos playing against Tron and maybe it's a little bit closer, but like rhinos eventually loses, you know? So like that was kind of disappointing to me, I suppose, in that there weren't a, a ton of upsets really. It was just the matchup sort of like playing out how you would expect them to, which is like, you know, comforting in its own way. But, uh, I don't know, maybe maybe just like not that exciting to some degree. Yeah, and this is the part of modern that frustrates me with the current state, if I'm being honest, which is I don't feel like the case six months ago, which is that like the, I'm going to say 25 to 35% of the games that play out the way you would predict or expect are actually pretty boring, if you ask me. Um, the really exciting part is when that doesn't happen. And- yeah, and I mean, to be fair, I think that that is where a little bit more innovation could come in handy or I don't know, even in terms of like coverage, certainly once you got down the stretch, the the field was pretty narrow. Like there's a lot of different archetypes present technically in the tournament, but you know, when you're looking at like the people who are in the top 25 of the standings play and they're all playing like the same four or five decks, you're just going to get a lot of repetitiveness, but I, you know, that's, that's fine. That's to be expected. Yeah. And even in those repetitive matchups, like the second the games don't play out or the first few turns don't go as predicted, or maybe the decks bash into each other and um, things get a little weird. That's when things get super exciting. And we did see that with, with the Tron games, you know, as far as like them, not 
operating at full capacity and like doing the truly busted stuff. Like again, those fair games were basically the highlight of the tournament in my mind. Yeah. And I think like the finals is a great show of this, right? Which was game four, which was one of the craziest games I've ever seen. And then game five that plays out as it, you know, is scripted and is pretty uneventful. That was another uh, like turn one grief, faint death, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And then Blood Moon on three. Yeah, it was just very, very tightly locked up. An embarrassment of riches. No, it's great. I mean, it's it, it is why you play that sort of deck, right? And I, I think we just don't see that very often where it's like, you know, the, the person has put their deck together in such a way where they get to do these things and then it just works out like super cleanly in game five of the finals. You know, like how often does that happen? Yeah. And like, listen, I, I, I appreciate that it happens some amount of the time and even in the finals, I'm fine with it. I just wish, you know, the game orders were a little swapped and game five was the climax, right? I think after game four, I was like, you know, uh, my heart was racing more than I can remember watching two people that I don't, I've never met before play in the finals of a PT. Like, yeah. You've never I met guess not ne- No, that's a stretch. Like, listen, I, like, that, I misspoke. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know Calcano very well, but I more mean like, I'm not necessarily overly invested on either side. And um, yeah, I found myself very invested in the game itself. Okay. Well, since I was avoiding you all weekend. Yeah, which messed you, up, by the way. Messed yeah, up. Look, I had my reasons. Uh, I'm, I'm going to tell you a little story. So this is one of the few Pro Tours where you look at the final standings and any of the top five people, I would have been very happy with them winning. Normally, a Pro Tour has like zero to two people that I'm rooting for in the top eight. And this one was just like, I yeah, I just don't care. I like I like all these people. This, this is awesome. Dude, the top eight was amazing. And honestly, one of my favorite moments from the whole PT was the top eight announcement, which is normally something that I find myself cringing and rolling my eyes at. I skipped and that. It was awesome. It was so good. Cedric did it, which was great. And Cedric did a great job of it. He's a great hype man. But like everybody was so genuinely happy. And that... I love that. That's fair. I don't know. I uh, no, you didn't empathy, watch it, man. You didn't empathy, watch it. Empathy is kind of a pain in the ass. So like, I can't, I can't watch like cringy stuff or, you know, like you know, stuff where like people are in, in pain or whatever. And I, I, I think that's because of empathy. Right. And to some degree, it's like, watching a thing where people are like overly happy it also makes me uncomfortable oh i agree it 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 also it makes me incredibly uncomfortable too and like i usually watch these things but they make me uncomfortable this one the it it felt very genuine and very authentic and it was not the 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 awkwardness that is normally there wasn't um cool and honestly like kai being there was part of it Right, uh, Calcano and the comeback that he had, a couple of newcomers to the Pro Tour, and Jake and the likes. Like it was, it was just really good. It was really well done, and um, it made me wish I was there. Yeah, maybe that's why I avoided it. I didn't want. Why? That because to you happen. wish you were there? No, because I I didn't want to feel that way. I don't oh. think that I would have, but maybe. Who knows? Uh, it was certainly in your range. Overall, though, I am 
I, I know that everyone was very happy to be there. I mean, like that, that came across in the little interviews that they did and everything, which is great. Obviously, I love to see that uh, you and I have been talking a decent amount about just like, you know, people who are able to like play magic and still just genuinely love it and enjoy it. And we love those people and wish the best for them, you know? Yeah. Love the think, game, man. And I, I think that this top eight was uh, for the most part, eight of those people. I think, you know, like Kai is curmudgeon or whatever, but you could tell that he was very happy to be in top eight. So he was incredibly happy to be there, at least from what I could tell and how it appeared. And him be his matches being covered down the stretch, especially as somebody who grew up watching Kai absolutely dominate the Pro Tour. Um, he's somebody I'm always rooting for and love to watch. And seeing him do well was awesome. Yeah, Not just do well, but he, seeing how invested that he was in the games, um, I really appreciated. Yeah, and I love that it wasn't a runaway, you know? Like, he actually had a bunch of nail biters, which was awesome. Yeah, yeah. He had a lot of sweats, a lot of tight moments, and he wasn't even on the winning side of all of them, right? So uh, yeah. he really had to work for it. Yeah, you get to watch like the, the high and lows of his tournament experience versus, you know, like Simon takes a very quick 12-0 and then scoops to Javier, and then Javier is the one who's like the first one to lock it up. And it's like, that stuff is awesome, and I do like that. But like when you're when you're talking about a story like Kai's, it matters so much more when you get to watch them play for a top eight in the last round or whatever. Yeah. And like, listen, that's why I really liked this, all the storylines with this pro tour. Like we had a little bit of everything, right? The amount of personality that Javier and Simon bring is just unbelievably amazing. And seeing Kai have to battle through adversity to get there. See, like it had Calcano, the longtime pro player come back. And then, you know, a few other players in the top eight that were new to the scene. It was, it, it had a little bit of everything. Well, I, I love Dom Harvey. I think that Dom is, in my mind, the the best, like, content creator in Magic currently, where he is able to, like, write and podcast and do commentary and just has a very deep understanding of Magic and the history of the game. He is very eloquent and well-spoken and everything like he is just excellent right and is doing a lot of stuff that i think is rad too where has you know the eighty thousand word amulet primer that he's just like i just wrote this for free because you know people should just have this like that stuff is awesome unbelievable strongly agree absolutely amazing and dom got the zero outer into top eight when unfortunately friend to both of us alex hayne uh was X three and one and then went to time in the last round playing for top eight. So like the winner of that was supposed to get eighth and Dom was supposed to get ninth. But since they drew, it suddenly opens up a slot for Dom and he just slides in when he's just like, I thought I was locked out, you know, like he was mortal locked for ninth. Yeah. Yeah. Less than 1%. Right. And I thought he was going to win the tournament. I really did. I, I thought it all lined up for him and Right, because he's he's playing Amulet in a bunch a sea of Tron decks, right? But well, you know, not not everyone's playing Tron, as it turns out. <laughs> so uh the the actual story, the reason I was rooting for like all five of these people, you might just be like, Oh, you know, Jake person in, in his first top eight appears nice enough or whatever, and it's like, no, nah, I've I've known Jake since he was like eight years old. Roanoke guy, right? So, not originally, 
He's originally from California, but uh, goes to school at Virginia Tech, which is in Blacksburg, which is like, you know, 40 minutes from Roanoke or something. So he is he's effectively a local like he's at all the tournaments around the area and has like ingratiated himself to the locals and everything. So like, yeah, now they can claim him. But I uh, was initially just uh, a kid that I saw at Grand Prix because his dad, Ted, was someone who I don't even know how I ran into him eventually, but just became one of those people who I would see like all the time. And it was just always him, always with his kids, always just like having so much fun, you know. And then at uh, some point they started doing like some SCG stuff and, uh, you know, it would be like invitationals or whatever. And then his his dad was like, oh, yeah, like Jake's going to school at Virginia Tech. And I was like, that rules because, you know, now he's like on my coast. Right. So awesome. Yeah. Super stoked for him. Um, honestly, I have like never played like with him or against him or even like really watched him play. And I was impressed. Like, dude, he just crushed it. He yeah, was he, on, he did, they had him, they had him great. doing, they had him doing interviews the whole way. And he just had the right attitude one game at a time. I, I was super impressed with his demeanor, especially through the top eight. Yeah. So as, as far as like people that I legit wanted to win, I think it is Jake. And I, I think that overall, like, yeah, he's probably just going to be happy with, like, a top eight or whatever. But, like, for for narrative and, like, you know, personal reasons, I guess, or whatever, it's just it is awesome to see him win. And I am super stoked. And I, I don't think that I would have had that same reaction with any of the other people necessarily. I still would have been very happy. But, yeah, just, like, watching this top eight play out, it's like I, I kind of don't care who wins, you know? It's, yeah. like, all, all just good choices, good options, so. That was awesome, but then like the the best result happened anyway. So this tournament ruled. It was awesome. I think the one thing that top eight was missing was a villain. No, man, you don't need villains. Why do you need villains if you just have all heroes, like all people to root for? You don't for the storyline, man. Someone. And and like, listen, man, maybe Jake was the one villain in the top eight, the one Rakdos scam player. Yeah, uh, and certainly you could root against him after like. Turn one griefing people a bunch. I think that, I think that that's fine. But like, well, listen, man, the turn two blood moon is just as bad if you ask me. No, yeah, I, yeah. I'm with you. I agree. Uh, you know, Dom's Dom's kind of a villain. Amulet's kind of a villain deck. You know, there there's some like I don't know, just evil undertones sort of things with like his. I think it was like round five feature match or something where he had two amulets and no lands for a bunch of turns. And then turn before he's going to lose, he draws a rod farm, just kills his opponent. Dude. Perfect. And you can just tell when he draws the land that he knows he's going to win. Oh yeah. He knew it's my favorite part is when he starts moving fast. Like, yeah, take notes. He knew. Uh, absolutely. I mean, it's, it is not his first rodeo, you know? Yeah. It's uh, fun to watch. It's super fun to watch. He had, he had some like really good games against Javier too, where his like his Titans got stone brained and then was able to win off the one cultivator Colossus and stuff. Like that was awesome. There was no shortage of excitement. 
no no shortage of like stone brain stories too (laughs) (laughs) dude the amount of times that someone like brought in the one stone brain and then just had it on turn two and it was like oh this just messes up this game completely (laughs) yeah and the amount of times where like what card to name with it wasn't even clear and if they made a different decision it would have played out way differently is just like unbelievable yeah for like the one of cyborg card that they're not even supposed to bring in it's so funny yeah um, what do you think about Dom's 61 card deck? Do you want to talk Whatever. about that for a minute? Whatever. I I played, you know, I, I've played 61 multiple times. I it's not right, but I I get it. Is I it understand. wrong? Uh I mean if it's not right, then I think technically it's wrong, yeah. Okay. Amulet, I think you could make a strong Amulet, argument the other way. Amulet doesn't have the same problems that it did before where you were so hard pressed to like actually find an amulet, resolve it, keep it in play where it was just like playing anything above 60 was just so foolish. Like now that you have Saga and everything, it's like you have a bunch of copies of your cards and you have a bunch of these like lands in your deck that are better as tutor targets and therefore like sitting in your deck. So whatever you do to decrease the chance of you actually drawing them is maybe a net good for you. So you can make that argument. I think it's all BS, you know? I, I think you just cut a card and be better off, but whatever. Well, if you don't know which one to cut, then you might. there's a good chance you might cut the wrong one. So Figure it, it out. It yeah. can't be that wrong. Yeah. I've told you these things, right? And when I see people do things like be very well practiced with a deck and do something unconventional... That's where I take notice, right? Yes. And I think the two most obvious ways that that happens is either playing 61 cards or choosing to draw in a certain matchup. Sure. Which are things that are like widely viewed as never correct. And I think they're actually correct more often than we give them credit for. But identifying when they're correct is incredibly difficult. So <laughs> that, that I want to emphasize that combination of things, though, of having somebody that is very well practiced and has a track record of success in a deck or a matchup that also chooses to do one of those things. I think it's awesome and the ultimate swagger move. And when I saw that he registered 61, in my book, his odds of winning and odds of having success went way up. So Nassif won PT Kyoto with 61. And you could make a lot of the same arguments like five color control, maybe the mana base distribution numbers are slightly better mathematically at 61. It's bullshit, right? Like you are deciding to do a thing and then justifying it however you want after the fact. And that is fine. You should just be upfront and honest and self-aware about that. I think Dom would probably have the same reaction as Nasif did. If you're like, why'd you play 61? They would just like smile and shrug and that's it. And, and like, listen, if it's, I'm not sure which card to cut, that's a totally reasonable reason. It's not. I think it is. Because you have the same thought going through your head when you're at like 62 cards and 63 cards and 64 cards. And I don't know, everyone else was able to narrow their deck down to 60. Why can't you? I think it's, it shows a huge amount of self-awareness and confidence. Reed Duke won a limited Grand Prix with a 45-card deck. What do you think of that? I mean, there are situations in limited where it has actually been correct, though. Yeah. And right. this was, like, from what I remember, like a pretty normal control deck in a limited format that went a lot of turns. Yeah, and I think that's fine if maybe he did not have a way to recycle cards or whatever. You know, it's like 
him decking is actually like a real possibility, then sure, I think that that makes sense. And especially if your card quality is high, whatever. Yeah. Uh, wh- how much interaction have you had with Ben Rubin? Uh, limited. Not meant. Not much. Okay. So I played him in a money draft in like 2004. And this is basically when he's on his way out or he may have already left and was just kind of like dipping his toes back in before he like left for good and eventually came back, you know, 12, 15 years later or something. But this is like Mirrodin Block and playing this sort of like affinity-ish mirror, I think the decks that I drafted were like very low to the ground, like 15 lands usually. And his was like a little bit chunkier, maybe more like colored cards and like an extra like six or seven drop or something. So my deck is probably naturally favored against him in most scenarios, unless, you know, maybe I flood out or something that he's going to beat me on card quality, right? And because my matchup was so good and because his deck wasn't able to capitalize in the early game and like a bunch of other reasons, right? Like I, I think I lost game one or like we're playing game three or whatever. And I chose to draw and he just quietly nods. The game proceeds and I I go on to win. Right. And then many, many years later, when he comes back, we are, we're interacting for the first, second, third time, something like that. And I was like, yeah, do you remember this money draft we played? He's like, of course I remember. You chose to draw against me in the Affinity Mirror. (laughs) 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 So, like, whenever you say stuff like that, it's like, oh, yeah, like, Ben Rubin does the same stuff. You know, like, he he remembers. And I was like, what did you think about that? And he was like, it was 100% right. I was hoping that you were going to play. I like it because it's bold, man. And like, listen, it's not always going to be right, but like, I think it shows a level of confidence and it it, does because you're not scared to be wrong or get made fun of. Exactly. Absolutely right. And I think like Dom with Titan is a great example of that, of like, who's going to question him, man. The the funny thing about it, though, is like you're already registering Amulet. So you're opening yourself up to a certain amount of scrutiny already. Right. And like his pre-tournament tweet was like, oh, surely it's good this time. Yeah. (laughs) right which Which is just like a self-defense mechanism for like please don't make fun of me for playing my pet deck or whatever yeah and then at that point who cares if you're playing 61 it doesn't matter listen i've been trying to make creativity work in modern for a while when i knew it wasn't right okay i'll never fault somebody for playing what they know you have have you i hadn't noticed that i was not aware Hey, varying degrees of success, okay? And creativity well, actually did halfway decent at this tournament. I, I have this on my notes. It's a thing to talk about. How do you feel about this? Two of them were in contention leading into like the last two rounds, and both of them lost all of their matches. I think, listen, the creativity match against Kai towards the end was very difficult for me to watch. And I thought that guy's list, I can't remember his name off the top of my head, was very Sean innovative. Goddard. With yeah. the silences. I was super impressed with this list. I was super impressed with this play all the way up to not casting that silence. And it was close. And then he got absolutely maximum punished by immediately drawing another one. He did two more. I just, if he just played the silence, like, listen, I was rooting for Kai, but I was rooting for creativity. So it was kind of a win-win for me. But like, it was so difficult to watch. It made sense though, right? Because it's like, well, I can do this to stop your rhinos or something along those lines, or I can use this to potentially power through a creativity later. Yeah. And he had all this life to work with. And then this four, four, just like 
four and then four and then four and then um it's like oh my god is this rhino really gonna go all the way and then and he, sure and he just drew like two more silences oh it was, it was so awful. hard to watch it was so hard to watch so uh, honestly if i had to have predicted how creativity was going to do leading up to the event i that's probably what i would have guessed is like a few people would have done reasonably well with it but like down the stretch i thought it was going to get beat up by the decks that did well and um, I especially think if Tron is a popular deck in the metagame, that it's really hard for creativity to exist because that matchup is incredibly difficult. Yeah, and you and I talked about it where it's like, you know, what, if Tron is big, what do you do? Is it like, you know, four wildfires? It can't be like two or three wildfires because that's not going to get the job done. Like you have to actually blow up their lands like multiple times or you just rely on like Pierce and Reprieve to buy you some time to the point where you can like crumble to dust them. But like, that's still pretty slow too. And yeah, I saw a few lists online in over the weekend after the Pro Tour results got posted playing multiple Alpine Moons in their sideboard, as well as two Terracidons. And I I think that you could be onto something there. And if you were going to try to make creativity work in a field of Tron, that's probably a good place to be. But like, I would really question is creativity even where you want to be in the first place in that circumstance. Yeah, the moon stuff only really works when the people are still only playing like one beside you. Well, you have to also have the terastodons, right? They go together because yes. the, 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 the alpine moons are a speed bump. No, I know. I know. But I'm just saying like even that as a speed bump only works when people are skimping on things like beside you. Well, if they had that's a that's a rampant growth, man. My, my terastodons coming down one turn sooner. Uh, I mean, yeah, sure. Yeah. I, I am kind of curious how the games do exactly play out in those Terracidon things, but I, I think it's one of the situations where there's going to be like infinite scaling possibilities. Like I, I've, I've Terracidon some folks in my time, you know, and it is not always clean like, oh, I automatically win. Uh, there have definitely been situations where it's like I have to, to rest on my and set myself up in a way where it's like I'm actually losing this race or like losing yeah. on the board, but like I have to do this to not die immediately and hope to I peel something or whatever. So basically, I'm just curious if it's always a lock, you know? Yeah, Terracidon is a super difficult card to play with, and I've played more of it than I probably should have historically. And I'm never actually sure how many three threes I'm supposed to give my opponent. And I've had a lot of spots where, in retrospect, I probably did it wrong. So, um, Definitely a super interesting card. Um, not sure if it's the place you want to be. I think if creativity is the place you want to be, it's the right place. But I don't know if I would be there. Yeah, I think they they were right to play Terastodon, but it just probably means that, yeah, maybe creativity is not the thing that you should be doing. But oh, well, uh, I feel like you're still going to find yourself in that situation at some point where you're like, well, I want to play creativity for reasons and shit, maybe it's 61 card creativity. Who knows? <laughs> you'll find some way to justify it. It's fine. And then you'll be like, oh, well, I need these terrestrials in the sideboard because, again, reasons or whatever. But I don't know. I I was I was kind of sweating towards the end because I was like, oh, if these two creativity players make top eight, then uh, things are going to get really, really weird uh, with us, I think. But then, then they both just lost, and I was like, okay, all is right with the world. Yeah, I think it's it was a weird event because I think the top eight was not necessarily a good representation of what the top tables were like down the stretch. And I think somebody said Jake's first time playing against Tron was the finals of the tournament, which is really hard to imagine. Which is, yeah, it's weird 
And also kind of weird because he did really well, right? You would think that maybe Tron would be one of the matchups that he just got got to kept queuing into, but yeah. So so let's let's talk about a couple of the things Jake did that I thought were a little interesting. One is that I thought was super smart is he went down to one blood moon, which in retrospect for the event might not have been great, but I think that was a natural place to go to try to get an edge in the mirror. And then the other thing he did is he played four fables. Uh, yeah, he credited, uh, I think, Liam Kane with Fable instead of Pyromancer, which the more I see that happen initially, I'm um, I'm kind of offended because I love season Pyromancer, but then you watch the games play out and it's just like, God, Fable's just so much better. Yeah, I think the big takeaway I had was how much better Fable was on like specifically like turns two, three, four, right? Of um, the having the early turns go well for this deck just like really buries your opponent and pyromancer in some of those spots wasn't necessarily as good obviously in the spots where you're hell bent later game it, it it's where it shines yeah i i definitely agree with all that i i think that it it is the correct choice and if you uh watch the matches and i i think the person that alex drew with in the last round i don't know if they had fable straight up instead of pyro but they certainly cast fable a lot uh, like their fables looked really, really good too. So definitely pay attention to that. I think going down to two terminates when you're not expecting a lot of Merktide regents, that seems kind of smart. Just uh, getting rid of the cards that are kind of like underperforming. Uh, I don't think that Blood Moon is one of those cards, especially in the aftermath of this weekend. I think that that is probably a card that you need to add the second copy back in. I've seen some people doing Magus instead of Blood Moon. Uh, maybe not that great if folks are playing Dismember in their Tron decks, but is definitely a thing you could do. And for the, the Rhino side of things specifically, like Rhinos actually does appreciate the extra body and the chip damage and stuff. And I, I think you can make a pretty good case for Magus instead of Blood Moon there, especially since there were, I don't know, games where you saw like Kai draw a blood moon kind of later on. And it's like maybe a second copy or was just like lacking a little bit of pressure to close the door or whatever. And maybe Magus would have been the difference. Yeah. I think creativity is the matchup specifically where the blood moons are significantly better. And as you see I, that trend down, I can see that transition making sense. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. You know, blood moon is harder to kill. It just is in a lot of instances, but when you're talking about Tron specifically, leading into the weekend, they had way more disenchants than they had dismembers or whatever, like ways to actually kill Magus. So They should have. Yeah, they, sh they should have. And yeah. now it's like, well, now they, they just kind of have a bunch of both. So it doesn't, I don't think it necessarily matters which one you go with. Granted, Baseju is searchable. So uh, maybe they have more ways to kill Blood Moon as a whole. And then, yeah, if you don't expect creativity or if the four color decks are not the ones playing Lightning Bolt, then it's about the same there too. So I don't know, like maybe Megas is a thing that you want to try. Yeah. C can we take a minute to talk about the two Lightning Bolts in Jake's sideboard and also how they happened to be one of them in his hand when Calcano was at <laughs> four? And they were. It was not just the lightning bolt that was in his deck post board against Tron, but it was out of the sideboard. Yeah, uh, not typically a card that. Yeah, usually it's a card that you take out against Tron, right? Yeah. Um, but 
if you look at his list, uh, two Terminates, two Fatal Push. Like, Terminate's okay against Worm Coil because you have Doffy, right? But, like, uh, at the very least, you're cutting Fatal Push. And then Bowmaster is, like, kind of medium. I know that people were jamming Fury on turn one, and Fury is a pretty decent answer to Karn, but I could see, like, shaving on either of those. So a decent amount of cards that you could consider taking out and then, yeah, just didn't have a whole lot of stuff to bring in. It's like a couple Blood Moons, maybe the the Pithing Needle if you want to stop O-Stone. And then what, what else are you doing? Like second Croxa. Like, it doesn't surprise me that maybe you want to get some Lightning Bolts in there too. Yeah. No, it, it didn't shock me necessarily, but I thought the more surprising thing was to see Lightning Bolt in a sideboard to begin with, not a typical place where you see that card. And then... Also, the circumstances that led up to that moment where not something I would have necessarily been expecting or playing around from the opposing side of things. And um, I think that added to the suspense of kind of the moment. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was definitely a weird moment. Uh, I, I don't know if you want to get into the whole thing, but it like Calcano had a card in hand and had an option. Uh, I... Well, okay. So the, actually, the the turn before Jake thought about like casting a Croxa when he knew his opponent had spells, and his opponent was at four life, and he also had a lightning bolt, and so he, he like I think he f- like fetched and then tapped and then untapped and just passed. So now it's kind of like all right. Well, if you are able to pick up on that, you probably know what your opponent has. But assuming you don't, then. Calcano goes into his turn and then has the option to play out his last card, which is a chromatic star and chooses not to, which makes a ton of sense given the game and what his plan was where he needed the last four mana to like pump ballista to kill a blocker and not have his ballista die so that he could like then untap, kill his own and steering bridge and then kill Jake. So people were like, Oh, like Calcano's so smart for like not casting the star or whatever, but it was like, he couldn't really cast the star, but Um, Yeah, it lined up really well for him not to cast the star, and it's pretty hard to imagine casting it on that last turn. Um, But watching it all play out, the amount of suspense leading into it was just, I think, everything that's awesome about top-level magic. And I would have loved to see if he had an extra mana floating around what he did. Yeah, I I think he plays it, but I don't know. I mean, maybe maybe he could have picked up on the fact that, like, Jake tapped and untapped on the last turn, and just, like, at that point, like, what what do you think your opponent has? You know, if they have a Dothy, yeah. they're they're probably playing it. Uh Bowmaster, he would just wait on. So if you if you think about it and you remember that not only does he have a Crocs and Main, but there's also another one in the sideboard, right? It's like, well, maybe this is a thing that you need to actually play around. Yeah. And to be honest, like Croxus, I don't even know if that's a card that's like necessarily on your radar for a card that he necessarily wants in his deck post board. But again, obviously we talked about there's not a ton of great options. So you're gonna have to have some stinkers. Yeah, and you're you're the beatdown deck, so any sort of extra reach that you can include to get yourself over the finish line, I think, does potentially help, especially when you know you're living in a world where you might just be like jamming Fury on turn one, right? Yeah. And it's just like, well, I'm gonna get in for like a bunch of damage and then hopefully find some way to close out the game from there. So Yeah. Far too often it's two mana Raven Scrime, but um Oh, I I despise Croxa. I think it is very, very bad in in most instances. So, uh, it th- there were a couple of games I saw on camera where it looked good, but 
most of the, the games that I see and have played, it looks like how it did there, where it's like, well, I could cast this, but it like literally doesn't do anything. So I'm just not even going to bother. Yeah, I think having an excessive amount of ways to put it into your graveyard kind of for free, whether it's off a of blood token or fable or the likes, that's kind of where you want to be in the ideal scenario. And games yes. where you're paying two mana for it are pretty embarrassing. Yeah, I absolutely hate it. It's just so tempo negative and feels so bad. But with the fact that all these these red decks have like Fable and Season Pyromancer and sometimes are able to like even play them together, you know, it's like that, that gives you a lot more reason to include uh, a Miser's Croxa or like a second Croxa even. Yeah. And I, I've done that in Historic and stuff, so I get it. So if you're registering Scam this weekend, how many Blood Moons are in your deck? Uh, two main and then either one in the board or like three to four break the ice in the board. And break the ice is sinkhole? Yeah, for, for colorless lands. Also has overload though, which is not irrelevant. Not irrelevant, but six is a lot. It is, but when you're talking about playing Fable instead of Season Pyromancer, it's like, well, you know, you're yeah. a little bit more likely to get there now. Yeah, and especially when we have multiple, right? Maybe the first one slows them down and the second one's the the dagger. Yeah, and there were plenty of games we saw where the Tron decks are getting disrupted to the point where maybe they don't have relevant cards or maybe their lands are not working or whatever, and then you're able to just draw a break the ice in the mid-game where you're like locked under and staring bridge and it like actually does a lot. Yeah. So... Uh, my, yeah, my deck would, if I was playing like mid rangey kind of stuff, like y you definitely need a lot of stuff to beat Tron. And I hope that people know this by now. I hope that they understand it's not like, uh, I board in like two stone rains and I have a good matchup or whatever. And even things like, well, I have to crumble to dust. Well, you need something to like bridge the gap in between that to, to actually have it matter. Especially since we saw a lot of the games play out where they were able to win and just like continue playing even though they didn't have access to Tron. Yeah, I think the overall theme is Tron is incredibly resilient, probably more resilient than most people give it credit for and don't lose sight of that. Right. And I, part of the problem with that is that Tron, like Lotus Field and Pioneer or whatever, is just, it's not a deck that you sit down and you like want to play test against, especially since the vast majority of quote unquote playtesting that people do is just like jamming game ones with very little thought to, you know, the, the post board games and how they play out and stuff too. So yeah, listen, I, I understand why people have that notion of drawn, but hopefully if you watch the tournament, you watch some of these games, you see how they play out. You're like getting more of a, a grasp and an understanding on it. Yeah. At least in my area, drawn players don't tend to have a lot of friends. But yeah, I, <laughs> another another uh, maybe unintended consequence of being a Tron player. But, you know, hey, we, we talked about this leading leading up to the Pro Tour where it's just like Pro Tour players have now decided that it's OK to play Tron. And Pro Tour players have mostly not decided yet that it's OK to play Living In with a, a couple of exceptions. Nassif, Nassif still loves that deck, man. No, of course. And yeah, he plays it in like every other modern challenge or whatever. Yeah. So to see him playing it, I'm not shocked. Yeah, and especially given the success that Rhino's had and how easy of a matchup that is, uh, wasn't a bad place to be. No, just pretty bad against Tron and them having like four relics or whatever. Yeah. 
bunch of and i think rhino's so. doing well is like i don't even know if that's necessarily good for living end because while it's a great matchup it also like the amount of cascade hate that you're gonna see is gonna really go up so no i i think it's good if you determine that something like rhinos is well positioned for the tournament because then yeah it means that your living end stuff is also probably gonna be pretty well positioned and then you just get to eat the rhinos players too i think that's awesome but you look at Jake's sideboard, three Chalice of the Void, two Engineered Explosives, he is way more prepared for Rhinos than, like, anyone else in the tournament and still has, like, the Chalices for Living End and, like, Dothy Voidwalker is kind of a problem for them, has Grief and Thoughtseize. Like, I I do not think that it is a good time for Cascade decks going forward, but I especially don't think it is a good time for Living End. Yep, I would agree. Because you know that Jake's is going to be the list that people just copy paste and join their rcq with so yeah and i would even i could even see them leaning a little bit harder into both the cascade and tron hate yeah i mean especially after this top eight three rhinos and then living end is just an, an added uh side benefit basically so uh definitely expect Rhinos to pick up a little bit, but it's going to have some pretty bad weeks before it has good ones. And then uh, people are going to pick up Tron and people are going to be more prepared for it, but probably underprepared for where they need to be. And then they're going to get, I think, more prepared over the course of a PTQ season and things will get worse. But yeah, who knows? So over the weekend... There was a modern super qualifier, regional championship qualifier. I'm not even sure what they call them on Sunday. So I, I watched all the Pro Tour results, got super excited about it. Uh, dusted off an old Hammer Time deck, which is a deck that I've historically played quite a bit and I thought was reasonably well positioned right now. Um, not something that I expected to think given Orcish Bowmaster and the likes, but if a lot of people are going to play Tron, uh, I did some brainstorming and tried to build the best hammer list I could against Tron. Um, got paired against Tron in round one and got very swiftly crushed. Um, <laughs> and that's just kind of how that goes. And that's how I think a lot of people's PTQs are going to go. But yeah. uh, the hammer numbers for the Pro Tour, not a lot of players, but uh, Blue-White Hammer, almost 70% win percentage. Mono-White Hammer, 60% win percentage. I mean, it, pretty well it positioned. Honestly looked like the best performing deck at the Pro Tour. Yeah, and I think that like Hammer against Tron is a pretty good place to be. And I think Urza's Saga as a card is a pretty good place to be against Scam. Um, so I, I think I think it makes a lot of sense right now. Um, I'll say I ended up going, I think, three and two in the tournament, but Hammer ended up having a really good event. But my two losses were to Scam and Tron, which were the two decks I was trying to beat, which yeah. was frustrating. Um, and Orcish Bowmasters is every much as a difficult card to deal with as expected. Um, but I still think that there's, Hammer might be on a comeback. Um, and it's certainly something worth exploring. And it ended up having a really good event online on Sunday. Why is why is Bowmaster specifically so tough for Hammer when the only one toughness thing you have is Esper Sentinel and I guess the one Ginger Brute? So I think... There's a few reasons. I think it having flash and letting them leave mana up is a problem in and of itself. I think raise the alarm and multiple blockers can be problematic. And the other issue I ran into is them playing it in response to a pure steel paladin trigger. Let them just kill pure steel paladin. 
Oh, which okay. was pretty frustrating. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So I think, listen, I don't think it's like impossible. I think that a few of the hammer decks have done a good job of adapting to this new Bowmaster world and like starting to trim and shave some of their one mana creatures and doing a lot of clever things with the sideboard. Um, and I think that the, the, the hammer decks have a lot of good hate against Cascade. There's a lot of anti-Cascade cards and fast clock. I think um, Sanctifier Envex is a pretty good place to be, to be against Black Red. So I, I think there's options. Forge Anew is a new tool that is pretty grindy and pretty powerful and gives the deck an interesting dynamic. So I do think Urza Saga is pretty well positioned and a super powerful card. And I think Hammer is definitely worth exploring more. Yeah, so Saga into Pithing Needle is also very good against Tron. And even Saga by itself as an army in a can, I think is good if you are expecting to get swept in a bunch of games. Yeah, so, can't, can't thought seize it either. Yeah, true. Yeah, big big action card that, that can't get stolen by one of those things. And like Fury is not that good against it too. So it, it has a lot going for it, I think. Yeah, and I think like enchantments are something that Scam is going to have a notoriously difficult time dealing with, obviously. So cards like Cigar Aid and Forge Anew are going to like really stick against them. Um, I think one of the cards that I was really torn about was Giver of Ruins, which, you know, obviously having two toughness is nice. It could have some interesting spots, but it does literally nothing against Tron. So that's a card that I'm still trying to figure out. Like, do we want it? Do we not want it? How many, et cetera? Um, but, I think and then, Tron, so much of your deck is like, I, I'm trying to put a hammer on a thing, and then a lot of the stuff is pretty close to like blank text. It's just like, yeah, Stoneforge Mystic like technically does stuff. It does search for hammer or whatever, but like, it's really not the best kind of card against Tron. And so many decks are going to feel that way, right? Or it's like, I, I'm going to use this, like Jake bringing in Lightning Bolt, for example. It's like, this is not like a, a good card against Tron, but it's just, it's what I got, you know? And I think Giver Runes just being a one drop is like, ah, okay, you know? Yeah. I'm, I'm just going to use it because I, I have it. It's cheap. It taps for Springleaf Drum and stuff. It can maybe attack for 11. Like, that's cool. Yeah. And like a little bit of the stuff you and I were talking about is like, you're kind of in this awkward spot where like a lot of your cheaper creatures are not necessarily very well positioned right now, but you can't just cut all your creatures. You like, you need your creatures to make stuff work. So um, it's kind of like the lesser of evils, if you will, on, you know, which of these cheaper creatures are we going to play? And I think, you know, Esper Sentinel and Giver Runes are kind of just what you got to deal with, make work. Yeah. I saw some folks within like the last couple of weeks playing Hammer with Memnites instead of Ornithopters. And it's like, I understand in a Ragavan world, that was kind of cute, but we're now in a Bowmaster world, and like that is just unacceptable. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, it's also to the point where, again, like some people are just like, I'm not going to play Ragavan or I'm going to cut it from my deck, which is kind of funny to me. Uh, and plus, like, I don't know, Ornithopter's got flying, two toughness, like also matters in terms of like Fury math and like how many things they get to kill with their Fury and stuff, too. So. Like, play play Ornithopter, please. Yeah, I think putting Mem Knight in your deck is illegal. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think Pethian is great. I think I had one in my main deck. I think the list that ended up winning the tournament had three in their sideboard, which I thought was 
super innovative and really interesting. And pithy needle on oblivion stone is a powerful thing. Yeah, it's awesome. But again, it's one of those things where it's like, oh, this is kind of like a speed bump for them, right? Eventually, they're going to find a besage you. And the the play pattern is usually like, oh, they, they do that, eventually blow up your blood moon or your alpine moon, and then they unlock their stuff. And it's playing out a lot of the same way here, where eventually they find the thing, kill your needle, and then they get to O-stone the board and like keep playing from there. So at that point, it's like, yeah, like redundancy matters, right? You can't just have the one needle, you need other stuff. And I I think that maybe one needle would be fine if you're doing like blacksmith skill instead. But, you know, we're talking about playing like spell pierce or a surge of salvation and like probably siding it out against them, right? So. Yeah, it's pretty hard to imagine blacksmith skill making the cut in the deck given how good surge is against scam. And I think, you know, that one of the bigger decisions is, is is the blue worth it for the spell pierces? And it was something that I chose to do, but I was pretty torn about it. Yeah. Uh, and and I, I really like some of the lists. One of the lists that did really well at the Pro Tour had four solitudes in the sideboard. And I thought that was super clever and a really good innovation on the deck. Yeah, I like that. Uh, skill skill has added upside if there is a lot of creativity because you can fizzle their creativity, but like that's not the world we live in now also. So it's just like another strike against it. So I, I agree with you that Pierce or Surge is where you want to be. I like the Needle main. You're right about that. Uh, I like Forge Anew as this thing that just allows you to continually pressure them with like, I am attacking you with a hammered creature, like turn after turn. And I think that that's just kind of pretty important now because so many decks are set up to deal with like the first couple waves of things and you just need ways to get over the finish line and the small ball interaction sort of stuff, like Giver of Rune, Spell Pierce, Surge of Salvation doesn't necessarily always line up. Like sometimes you're on the draw and you're, you just don't have enough mana to be able to make all of that stuff work in time, you know? So uh, I like Forge New quite a bit, uh, you know, to the point where I played as a two of or something, but, you know, not much past that. But I do think it's an important addition to the deck, too. Yeah. And if there's any surprises I have from the whole weekend, it's the resurgence that I think Hammer is making. And I think it's actually surprisingly well, well positioned, which is something that, you know, just a week ago it would have been hard to imagine saying. Yeah. Uh, you know, prevalence, prevalence of. Uh, rhinos, I, I think that's good for you. That would be my, I don't know, general thoughts and assessment on it. Like, obviously, it can't be tricky, especially with how much hate that they have, but I, I would assume that overall that's a good matchup. And then Omnath is certainly not really caring about beating up on you currently. So that's definitely a, a nod in your favor. And like, they're just not showing up a bunch too. So, yeah, it's good. Uh, the number of Force of Vigors is something to keep an eye on, right? It is. It is for sure. And it's not like that card is like terrible against Tron or anything, but it's not the thing that you would turn to. It's like the the lightning bolt sort of thing where it's like, well, if I have it, I'll probably bring it in, but it's maybe not going to be the difference maker. Yeah. I mean, it, if Titan starts to become a thing, that might change that equation. Oh, bit, yeah. I, I love Force against Amulet now. Yeah. There's nothing better than killing somebody's land for zero mana. I know. It's so good. Yeah, Hammer oddly looks like kind of well-positioned given how the tournament played out and everything, which is cool because not only did 
the Pro Tour itself moved the format forward, but also in the aftermath of that, we now have the opportunity to, again, move the format forward again. So this is this is all great. I love this. I think you could look at the top eight where it's like a bunch of Tron, a bunch of Rhinos, and even some like some of how the games played out, be like, oh, this is not super satisfying. But Scam ends up winning. There's an amulet deck in top eight. There are a lot of decks that were very close to getting into top eight where it's like, oh, you know, maybe maybe there is something there with creativity because it wasn't like one person went pretty deep. Two of them went pretty deep, right? Yeah. And yeah, then you have Hammer in the aftermath where it's like, where does this sit? And also there are just like all of these Omnath players that are kind of homeless at this point. Like, where, where do those players go? What do they pick up? What do they play? So I... I think this weekend was awesome and we don't know exactly what is going to happen going forward. And there's a lot of stuff to actually like try and figure out. So it's just like the perfect tournament. I agree. So for me, uh, I have an event. Well, first I have an arena event uh, that is Explorer, <laughs> which I will dabble. I will play the playing qualifier. That's this weekend, the play in. And then the actual qualifier thing is next weekend. Uh, there's there's like this this Apex thing next weekend too. Do you know about this? Yeah, you you sent it to me. I'm su- I'm not super familiar though. It's it's this game store in Caldwell, Ohio, and Todd Anderson has been doing a bunch of work for them. Uh, he's like doing commentary for the events and stuff, and they're basically doing like a smaller scale sort of SCG kind of thing. And it sounds cool. It looks sweet. And then I was like, all right, how do I? how do I get to Caldwell, Ohio? What is that near? Where do I have to fly into? And it's like the closest airport is like an hour away. Yeah. So I don't know. I think that would be interesting to go to. But uh, the weekend after that, I have a thing in Raleigh that I'm definitely going to, which is like a pioneer tournament, then a modern tournament, then a pioneer tournament. That's a lot of decisions. So what am I, what am I doing? What am I playing? Black, red, black, red, and black, red. Shit. It's a lot of blood grips. Yeah. I'm going to have to do a bunch of like, you know, sleeving and de-sleeving. Yeah. I think you got enough of them. Did you ever play in one of those invitationals where you're playing like Stoneforge Mystic in both formats and like your standard and legacy decks contained like the same 30 cards or whatever? (laughs) And unfortunately for me, my rounds tended to go pretty deep. And yeah, it so was usually a, a mad scramble in between to, uh, yeah. yeah it, was, it, was a, it was a weird feeling to be like, oh, what is, I guess, the best way to handle this? The fact that I have to like move these 20 cards into my other deck and then back again. You know? Yeah. Should I feel bad that I'm unsleeving 20 cards from my standard deck to put them in my legacy deck? Yeah. Or is it just like, should I just get a bunch of the same sleeves and just like swap them in? So I'm too paranoid like, for that. No, I know because then you have like 20 like pretty worn cards. You have to make sure that the other sleeves match and stuff. So yeah, I can't do that. Would never do that. I, I think I just like de-sleeve and, and re-sleeve them or whatever. But yeah, yeah that, was, that was a weird time. That yeah. sounds like what I'd be getting into. Yeah. Peak anxiety for me. Absolutely. <laughs> um, yeah. Especially when it's you, you know, you were the one that was holding up the tournament and pairings are already up. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Not a All place. Man, hurry up. Be. Let's go. Yeah. Uh, so, so Rack Sack, would you endorse that over the Brian Shields mid-range special? 
I think so, especially for you. Um, I've been playing a little bit of Pioneer on the side, and I think there's one more RCQ that I might get talked into and going to here in two weeks. And I've been playing a little bit of Blue White Spirits online and quite enjoying that. Um, I really enjoy it. It's, it's, it's a deck that's really surprised me and impressed me. Everything except for the red-black sack matchup, which is something that is not very fun to play. I think that Spirits is one of those decks where if you actually hammered out the true matchup for a lot of things, you would be completely off it. But in the meantime, like beating up people who don't have a ton of experience against you or like aren't fully prepared or whatever probably feels pretty good. But I don't think that it's a deck that has a whole lot of longevity or would be good for like a pro tour level event for whatever that's worth. I don't I don't totally disagree with you, but it, I do win a good amount with it and it makes me feel very clever. Yeah. Um, but it might be more cute than good. And um, what I will plant a seed on is I did order the cards for red black sack. So what I'll hey. likely do is have you talk me into that. I own most of those. I need to get some furnace reins. They finally printed a good threaten. I'm stoked. Yeah. This was like three sets ago or whatever, but like, you know, still still haven't quite gotten around to it. But other than that, yeah, I, I got all those cards. I've had Mayhem Devils and Caller and Familiars for quite a bit. Uh so I am I'm set. I'm ready to go. Uh, you know, minus a couple things. So I'm down to playing that. And I'm I'm down for playing that in Explorer too. So I think I'm I'm pretty set there. What the hell am I doing in modern, man? It's funny. Modern was the place where we spent all this time talking and discussing and practicing, and it might be the place where I'm the least sure about what to do. Yeah, that's the thing. I, I think that we, in, in talking things out over the last couple of weeks, we came to a bunch of like decent conclusions, but needed to go like a step past that and then never did, you know? Yeah. I, I mean, I go back to when we first started talking about the One Ring, where I think we correctly identified there would be an arms race, and whatever deck went the most over the top in the One Ring arms race was going to be the best positioned. And um, I think some combination of Karn the Great Creator and Tron is how you do that. Um, yeah. And, and uh, well, yeah, we got there eventually, but then it's like, okay, well, what is the aftermath of that? And it's like, well, rhinos can kind of get under it too which is yep. good, which makes things look pretty solid for them. And then scam is still prevalent. Um, so now we're again at the spot where it's like, we sort of have the conclusions. We just need to take it a step further. And I'm trying to do that in like, you know, this 30 seconds. <laughs> yeah. We got step Surely one and two make right. that happen. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I'll call you tomorrow and you let me know. Oh, that's how this works. Okay. <laughs> I wasn't, I wasn't aware. Uh, yeah, I, I think that no matter what, I'm I, I probably can't blow it too much because a lot of the things that I would end up defaulting to couldn't be that bad. But uh certainly a lot of the decks that I built on Magic Online the last couple of days, I haven't actually put them into practice quite yet because they took away my all access tokens. Now it's a pain in the ass to get stuff, but uh I haven't put it into practice, but I was building a lot of like Omnath kind of tangentially related sort of things like mid-range piles, which hopefully I don't get to that point. But uh, I would guess that if I did, it is probably because I did play a bunch of games and think that I broke it, at which point maybe I'm right about that. But like, if I don't get around to playing a bunch of games, then probably just try and get scammed together or something. I don't know. 
I was like griefing people in Legacy. Loved it. Looks looks pretty fun in Modern. So can't beat him. Join him. Well, I don't know that I've ever lost a scam actually, but yeah. Well, I, hey, listen. If you think beat it, breaking it is in your range and it's just a matter of playing games, I might twist your arm over the next few days and see if I can. See, it's it's tough because I think I could break it for a run back of this pro tour or even for if there was another pro tour in modern the next week. But for a random local ish modern 10 K in North Carolina, dude, I don't know what the hell people are going to show up with. Right. So well, at that, at that point, I just have to play something that's solid, like soft read instead of hard read, you know? Sure. What I can tell you is everybody's going to be cutting four of their sideboard cards for four cards against Tron. Yes. So everything not Tron just like went up a few points. Yeah. And not that this was ever really in my range, but I think that a lot of that carries over for things like Amulet too. Yeah. So um, I would certainly be looking for alternatives to those personally, but. Yeah. Scam is scam is probably the best thing. All right, yeah. Monoractos, I'm sold. I'm just Rakdosing for like the next three weekends, I guess. Are we just going to own eight Blood Crypts so we don't have to deal with that? I thought about that. That's the other thing is like, what if I just buy, you know, for those invitationals, it was like, what if I just own eight Stoneforges or whatever? But I was doing kind of well for myself back then, but not well enough to do that, especially when Stoneforges were like, I don't know, 50 bucks or whatever. Yeah, they were far too expensive for me. To uh, that, that would that just time. been a silly purchase. Yeah, but especially considering how likely they were to be banned. Yeah, <laughs> they're they're on borrowed time in in all the formats because I don't know they were just a never good in legacy and b were definitely getting banned in standard at some point. So yeah, cool. Uh, yeah, Rakdos maining. Uh, what about you? What do you got on the docket? Are you gonna play this arena thing? Um, I honestly didn't realize it was happening or what's going on in the format, but I will be around on Saturday for a little while. So yeah, if you're going to be around and playing um, and you send me a deck, there's a very high chance I'll play. And um, yeah, I'm excited to explore it a little bit. Best of one explorer, baby. Like what else could you possibly want to do on your Saturday? Listen, I actually quite enjoy arena and some of these best of one formats in a very small sample size. So playing them for a few weeks straight to prepare, no thank you. Um, playing them for 48 hours and playing in a reasonably high stakes event relative to arena. Uh, yeah, that sounds pretty interesting to me. I don't know that I would say I enjoy it in a small sample size, but I certainly engage with it in a small sample size. So it's got to count for yeah. something. Evidence would suggest that you enjoy it. Maybe I just got nothing better to do. Yeah. You don't have to admit it. It's okay. We know. Yeah, either way, game. Good luck.